We should just have a dance party after this. I know. I feel like we need it. We probably should have done it at the place, but at the office, but no space. Slash time. Now I have to pull up the article that I want to read. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we should probably um like start doing a podcast. Doing a podcast. <sighs> Ow, that hurt my brain. <laughs> I like that. Ow, that hurt my brain. Ow, that hurt my brain. <laughs> Are you a good witch or a bad bitch, bad bitch, bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to rule your lips, shake your shoulders, shake your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Uh, welcome to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Are we recording? I assumed. We're always recording. See? For <laughs> once, I'm on it. And Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh, my God. Okay. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Can we turn on a light? Yep. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Hannah. Hi. Good morning. Shit. <laughs> 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 we are the most awkward podcast starters that I know. Yeah, I'm going to just like, I'm going to do it real hard right now, okay? Do it real hard, babe. Welcome to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Welcome to your favorite podcast where awkward people talk about women. Damn straight. We we have a lot to say about ladies. Yep. And the patriarchy. And the patriarchy. Today, especially. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, this is a podcast where we talk about history we talk about ladies we talk about everything that comes to mind contemporary ladies sometimes historical ladies sometimes yeah space ladies earth ladies space ladies and earth ladies i mean they're technically earth ladies who've gone to space <laughs> but uh, well why don't we ride your wave of energy what what oh boy mm-hmm. <laughs> wide my rave uh-huh <laughs> Let's do that, whatever that is. So what I wanted to talk about this week. So in lieu of an intro, we had one. We usually do an article. Um, We wanted to discuss uh, the passage of New York State's uh, Reproductive Health Care Act, which is a pretty significant move um, by the New York State uh, legislature. And um, we felt it was really important and that we had a lot to say about it. Uh, It's a pretty um, delicate topic, maybe triggering for some people. And we ended up talking for a lot longer than we particularly wanted to. Uh, Not longer than we needed to. I feel like the conversation was as long as it needed to be. Agreed. Um, But we're going to release that actually as a... um, Bonus. A separate bonus episode. That way, in case if it's a little too sensitive for you, maybe you don't want to listen to it because it is discussion, frank, open discussion about abortion and, and late reproductive rights and late term abortions um, and what that means and why it's so important that New York State has taken this step and why so many people on the other side of it are freaking out about it. Um, I really thought it was a really wonderful discussion rant it was highly highly emotional um but really great i think and um 
but we want to release it as its kind of own thing because it did go on for quite some time and we want to get you to the lady of the week because she's really fucking awesome yeah so look out for our our second bonus episode ever uh i think we'll probably be titling it cunts unplugged episode two could be because we do have one prior to this with a similar situation where we ranted for a while about the word cunt um so yeah and its origins <laughs> that's right which are, are and why it's a great word okay. and why it's a great word you made with a lot of wrong connotations but yeah. this is not enough that episode so no. go listen to that um we'll be releasing that soon and um hopefully you'll give it a listen because i think it's really important yeah and now on to the lady of the week Woo-hoo! what's up witches we have some really exciting news we have just launched our patreon yay Woo-hoo! something we've been trying to do for a while yes and we finally gotten there yes and if you are not familiar with patreon it is basically a platform that helps content creators like us, like us make a little bit of money to help with costs associated with creating that content Right. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast, mm-hmm. um, and we'll have the link in our show notes. Yes. At the moment, we have a very basic tiered system. You get to be a patron of this show, and you can opt in to whether or not you want to be a good witch patron or a bad bitch patron. It's the same if you do a minimum donation of $3 or more per month, and uh, the first 10 people of each will get a free pin corresponding, corresponding to whichever option you chose hell yeah and you'll get a shout out on the podcast as a good witch or a bad bitch whichever one you choose to be which is pretty fucking rad yeah we're pretty excited about that and we really appreciate all of the support that you guys have given us thus far and that you'll continue to give us hopefully fingers crossed and we look forward to seeing you in our patriosphere hell yeah matriosphere on patreon (laughs) (laughs) yeah Let's go with it. Cool. Cool. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. We love you. I'm actually really excited to talk about my lady this week because this week I wanted to kind of go outside of my instinctual box, no pun intended, um, <laughs> uh, for um, for the lady that I picked. And I was like, what's, what's like a, a type of woman that we haven't particularly covered on this uh, podcast yet? And one of the things that came to my mind was fashion designers. Oh, okay. And I was like, okay, well, who's mm, mm, Coco Chanel? And I went and I started looking up a little bit about Coco Chanel because that's literally the first and that was going to be my kind of jumping off point. Yeah. Lord Coco Chanel had a a Nazi boyfriend for a while. And I was like, yeah, don't really want to cover her. And so that was my jumping off point. And then I discovered um, Elsa Schiaparelli who was one of Coco Chanel's contemporaries, rivals, um, was not involved with Nazis. (laughs) A plus. Um, And she was actually, she actually viewed herself to be, um, I mean, they all do. I don't mean this in any denigration, but a true artist. Like she collaborated with other visual artists. Okay. Like sculptors, painters. She was really good friends with Salvador Dali and, and was really involved in the surrealist movement and wanted to bring that into fashion. And cool. she's fucking rad. So that's who we're going to talk about today. Fuck yes. Yes. I am so down. All right. So my sources this week, Schiaparelli.com, Vogue. Met Museum Ooh. and Legacy.com. Okay. Yes. So she's like 
there's some serious art she's, going on. She's cemented herself in, in the artistic world for sure. Okay, so little intro. Italian-born French couturière Elsa Schiaparelli is best known for her, her iconoclastic bravado and unrestrained, at times brazen, originality of her work. While her contemporaries, Gabrielle Chanel and Madeleine Vionnet, set the period standards of taste and beauty in fashion design, Schiaparelli flouted convention in the pursuit of a more idiosyncratic style. As much an artist as a dress designer, she commandeered the talents of a host of prominent artisans and artists, most notably those associated with the Surrealist movement. Very cool. Distilling their disquieting, dream-based imagery and provocative concepts through her own creative process, she incorporated themes inspired by contemporaneous events, erotic fantasy, traditional and avant-garde art, and her own psyche into her designs. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yes. A repertoire of inventive devices, experimental fabrics with pronounced textures, bold prints with unorthodox imagery and colors, opulent embroideries, outsized and exposed zippers, and distinctive buttons and ornaments ranging from the whimsical to the bizarre was her medium of creative expression. Love it. She was born in 1890 in the Corsini Palace in Rome with a father who was the director of the Lindsay Library, mm. as well as a professor of Asian literature, an astronomer uncle, and a mother descended from the Medicis. Oh, my God. She grew up in a family of aristocrats and intellectuals. She was, by her own account, a difficult child who chafed against societal and parental control. <laughs> Even at an early age, the need for personal freedom, which she later expressed in her designs, was her first priority. She was prone to mischievous pranks that often had consequences. As recounted in her autobiography, she was once miffed that she could not attend her parents' dinner party and retaliated by opening a jar of fleas under the dinner table, which set off an itching episode among the hapless guests before they fled the scene. What that a little shit! Vindictive and awful. I know. I was thinking like, oh, something with super glue or Clever. I don't know fleas. Fleas. That's you gotta find a way to get rid of fleas when mm-hmm. you have fleas. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! In your aristocratic house. All right, so she's serious business. She is. She does not like to be told what to do. Fuck. Fleas. Oh, my God. She studied philosophy, even though her initial dream was to become an actress. Mm. In 1911, so she was 21, she published a collection of of overtly sensual and erotic poems named Arethusa. When her parents learned about it, she was sent to a convent in Switzerland. This'll do it. This'll get that sensual poetry right out of her. She proved too feisty for even those walls because she was kicked out of the convent (laughs) after going on a hunger strike. (laughs) Oh, my God. She's fucking wild, man. She was uh, at one point eager to avoid uh, pressure from her parents to marry a Russian aristocrat who was pursuing her. So she took advantage of an opportunity to go to London in 1913 and left Rome for good. She went with one of her sister's friends to help look after her children. So she was eager to avoid pressure from her family to marry a Russian diplomat who was pursuing her. Fair. So she decided that when her sister's friend was like, hey, I'm going to London and I have kids. Do you want to come help take care of the kids in London and get away from your family? She was like, fuck yes. Yep. And so in 1913, she went to London to be a nanny for these kids. While she was there, I guess, uh, she was attending a conference on theology, which 
at this time, there was so much that like the mysticism movement was so huge that theology was a very broad umbrella. Yeah. What year did you say this was? It was it was uh, 1914. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So she was there. Uh, she met a uh, Polish Swiss lecturer on spiritual mysticism and Ooh. the paranormal. Ooh. Ooh. His name is Wild. You ready for this? Yes. Count Wilhelm Vent de Curler. <laughs> no. <laughs> yep. She very quickly fell for oh the charms God. of this young theologian, in quotes, and philosopher. Oh. Although, according to some people, he was merely a charismatic con man. Uh-huh. As so many of those people were. Yup. So they uh, fell in love real quick. Uh, got How married, could you not? Got married like... very impulsively. Um, they got married only a few days after they met. So, so real impulsive. Like, uh, what what was that show? Wild, passionate affair. Mar love, married at first sight or whatever. No, it was the one with Jenna Elfman, and oh my god, not Will and Grace. Darman and Greg. Darman and Greg. It's like Darman and Greg. Except for that one, I think is happier. The marriage actually works. <laughs> oh, okay, that's fair. Um, so they lived for two years in Nice, in France. And then they moved to the U.S. where Elsa would remain for the next six years. They moved to New York. All right. Um, when they were married, they were living off of Elsa's dowry. Oh, my um, God. she came from a rich family, right? Dowries. But the Still? dowry was disappearing at the speed of light. Jesus. They had a daughter in 1920, which I thought was interesting because she would have been 30 in 1920, which is mm. like Pretty old at that time. Yeah, to be having, to be having kids. a baby. But yeah. 1914, when they got married, she was she was 24. Yeah. Um. So it's, they had a daughter in 1920, Countess Maria Luisa Yvonne Radha Devent de Curler. Lord. But they just called her Gogo. -Go. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, Yvonne was what she like went by for her name, but then her family called her Gogo. -Go. Jesus. Um, very go -go. soon after birth, she, uh, Gogo -Go contracted polio, uh, needed extra medical care. Oh, um, she was fine. She like grew up into adulthood, but had a lot of extra medical needs. She, uh, Elsa was juggling her bohemian lifestyle, part-time jobs, her husband's repeated absences and affairs mm. and taking care of her daughter who needed extra attention. So she asked her husband for a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I like, can't this, do this. This isn't working out. There's too much to um, do. As fortune would have it, on her 1916 voyage to America, she met Gabrielle Pacabia, who was wife of Dadaist painter Francis Pacabia. And Gabrielle happened to own a French fashion boutique in New York City. Oh. This chance encounter developed into a strong friendship that would eventually lead to Schiaparelli's involvement with proponents of the Surrealist movement in art and later to an acquaintance with revolutionary fashion designer Paul Poiret. More on him later. It would also introduce her into the circle of other avant-garde artists of the time, like Man Ray, who was mentor uh, to Bernice Abbott. Oh, okay. I was like, I recognize All that these name. things coming together. Uh, Marcel Duchamp and Edward Steichen. Uh, dabbling at the time in writing and gold sculpting, she was also making clothes for herself and her close friends. Oh. So in 1922, she left New York. She went back to Paris with her daughter, single mom in Paris, because Europe was ahead medically in terms of treatment for Gogo, -Go. So that's, I think, the main sort of uh, catalyst into why they left. Yeah. During the day, she worked for an antiques dealer. In the evening, she frequented Le Boeuf sur le Toit, which was a famous restaurant and hotspot for artists. 
Was she going with her friend or? Presumably. Yeah. But like while she was there, her circle of artist friends really blossomed. Yeah. Um, and one day, one of her artist friends um, invited her to accompany uh, them to a fitting at Paul Poiret's boutique. Okay. She tried on a few of his designs while she was waiting, even though she couldn't afford to buy any of his mm. stuff. But this experience of a couture house, the luxury quality design colors, materials, embroidery shapes, it kind of like lit a fire under her ass and a light bulb over her head. And it proved to be like a huge turning point for her. Like seeing herself in these like super gorgeous luxe clothes. And because she'd already been designing clothing yeah. for herself and her friends, um, that kind of spurred her. Uh, and she made the decision then that she wanted to be a freelance designer. Freelance. As a job. Okay. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon after that, uh, she had a simple yet radical and genius idea. A hand-knit pullover with a black and white trompe-l'oeil motif. Trompe-l'oeil meaning like trick the eye. Oh, okay. So it was a design patterned with a square collar and a red bow knot. Oh. Ooh. So it looks like a, it's just a pullover sweater, but it has like the design of, we have multiple layers. Yeah. And so those were her kind of sweaters. So it looks like it had like it's you know the Peter Pan collar with the bow, but they're but it's all printed on the on the sweater, sweater, which was new and revolutionary for the time. Right to have like a design the preliminary to the tuxedo shirt. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> She's much better than um, that. Her early designs were much more conservative than her later works, but they still incorporated, obviously, as you can see, her quirky and sort of imaginative aesthetic. Yeah, that sweater was immediately deemed a masterpiece by Vogue. Oh. And the United States made it a star product within a few months. So like instantly her star exploded, rose, and she had to expand her staff. Like it was so fast. That's one of the first things she designed. And immediately she was like the hot new thing. Thing. Wow. Because she wasn't copying anybody. She was just like, this is nope. a cool thing I like. Nope. And But she had a lot of like Dadaist and surrealist sort of friends. And that quirk sort of made it way in and nobody had ever seen that kind of thing before yeah yep oh that's fucking cool yeah so um although she founded her company in her own apartment in 1927 her business really took off the following year when she set up atelier uh which that's the french word for workshop or studio i had to look it up oh i guess so that it's makes like sense. fashion houses all have ateliers yeah but that's their workshop um oh. so she set one up uh in a salon uh an office uh, with the name Schiaparelli pour le sport, which means sportswear. <laughs> Schiaparelli sportswear. Uh, on the door plate. It means for the sport. Oh, my God. Um, her collection of knitwear pieces was fleshed out with swimsuits, beachwear, accessories. Her motifs became more varied. Abstract tortoises, skeletons, sailor tattoos, etc. Whoa! As did the colors, playing on contrasts, black and white, black and bright shades. This blend of haute couture and sportswear had such an impact across the pond that American textile manufacturers offered her her first licensing agreements. Ah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So. This is so inspiring. Like freelance, mm -hmm. a freelance designer. And all it takes is like one person to be like, fuck yes, this is amazing. It's like yeah. what Lady Gaga just recently said. I don't know if she was quoting someone else, but she said, or no. God, who was it? She responded to it. Anyway, it's, the whole point is you can have a room full of 100 people and 99 of them don't believe in you, but all it takes is one who does. Yeah. And yeah. And I was like, that's so great. I love that. And this that just kind of reminds it's me. It's a good that. reminder mm -hmm. for all of us. For all of us. Especially Fuck. in this gig economy. Woo! Um, she was a maverick in more practical ways, too. 
She designed the Divided Skirt, which was an early version of culottes. Oh. And it caused a huge stir in England and the tennis world when it was worn by player Lily Alvarez in 1931 while she was playing tennis. So wait, what? It, how is it different from a culotte then? I think it's because it's a skirt over it. Oh. So it kind of looks like a skirt. It's like skirts, but long. I think so. Maybe. I think okay. so. All right. Um, she then started designing evening wear. Um, and she moved her store to Paris's glitzy Place Vendôme. Mm. She turned the jumpsuit, previously a functional item worn by parachutists, into a fashion piece and was the first designer to use zippers as a fashion feature. This, uh, What's so cool about this is it's like she's clearly somebody who has been all over the map of, of like wealth. Mm-hmm. Starting out with an intellectual, wealthy aristocratic family. family, living a bohemian lifestyle, running out of her dowry, living like in the muck with artists who have no money. I mean, yeah, you. She's lived so many levels of that in her life that she's seen a lot of different uh, types of apparel. I assume that people mm-hmm. who are just plain wealthy never see or think to use or anything yep. like that. Yeah, I mean, the the idea. Of printing the, the, just the image of, like, texture of a collar and a ribbon on a shirt is so genius in part because it's something that, that somebody with not much money, I think, would do personally because they don't have, they don't necessarily maybe have the money to create right. all, to have right. all the different fabric pieces that right. go with that. And so it's like, it's an uh, economical way of presenting that image without, spending all the money on it so it's super interesting to hear about like all the ways that her her various mm-hmm. backgrounds mm-hmm. and artistic mm-hmm. uh you know leanings have come into this it's cool yeah right because like what the jumpsuit the fucking it was a work that's cool piece, and then she made it fashion and it's just and it's still fashion oh for sure thanks to her yeah that's amazing mm-hmm. i never knew she really it would seem left her mark and that's like super obvious even today like inspiring designers of today all of them yeah anyway uh from 1929 onwards she introduced a growing number of innovations in terms of materials cuts details and accessories uh a raincoat in rubberized wool and silk jumpsuits with visible zips which would later be followed by colored zips and then multicolored versions uh, the first evening dress, a wrap dress with a plunging neckline. Ooh. Strong-shouldered suits, the ancestor of the power suit. <laughs> Reversible black oh. and white evening dresses. Aerodynamic cuts created by skillfully placed flounces. Eccentric hats, such as the madcap, which was copied to such an extent that Elsa would almost regret having designed it. <laughs> and a license in the United States for metal mesh bags. God, what year was this? The sometime it's in 1929 onward. So it's the 30s was like her Damn. huge heyday. This um, all seems very like it doesn't seem like 30s, like as early as the 30s. It's all stuff that I don't know. I but think it, of, it totally is. But that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Wow. In 1932, mm-hmm. her couture house, which had become Schiaparelli pour le sport, pour la vie, pour le soir, <laughs> which is sportswear, city, and evening wear. <laughs> So don't want to limit myself. Her house now spanned several floors and included eight ateliers accommodating over 400 employees. Jesus. The following year, she opened a store in London and an office in New York. 
And uh, she launched, launched her first fragrance in 1928, presented a collection of three additional perfumes in 1934 because her first fragrance was so successful. Um, and in 1935, her couture house took over a huge hotel in Paris, which now had five floors, 98 rooms, and over 700 employees, including a ground floor boutique. Wow. Like, she just exploded in a matter of five years, it went from like her and her apartment. No, 10 years went from her and her apartment to 700 employees. That's intense. Right? Yes. Um, yeah. As a result of having lived for an extended period in the United States, Schiaparelli was particularly attuned to the American fashion industry and the upper middle class American women's uh, stylistic and utilitarian preferences. All right. There it is. She alternated sportswear with restrained lines, hard chic suits and day dresses with unashamedly seductive evening dresses. She took her inspiration from the male wardrobe to create the first coat shirt in 1935. Damn! Each collection of hers told a rich story, borrowing from the precious and the ordinary, art and everyday life, the figurative and the narrative, surrealism and referenced symbols, the poetic and the architectural Black and the most striking colors, the provocative and the severe. Her reputation was such that she became the first female fashion designer to be featured on the cover of Time magazine. Really? Mm -hmm. In 1934. Their piece on her, they wrote, quote, madder and more original than most of her contemporaries, Madame Schiaparelli is the one to whom the word genius is applied most often. (laughs) Wow. So... (laughs) I assume you're going to talk a little bit about Coco Chanel and like her rivalry with her. Not too much. Not too much. Um, I will say there's one line that I included. Um, I can just do it now because there's really no reason why not. <laughs> so Coco Chanel famously describes Schiaparelli as that Italian artist who makes clothes. Oh, my God. And Schiaparelli called Coco Chanel in response simply that milliner. <laughs> so they didn't like each other that much. So it would seem. No. Um, That Italian artist who makes clothes. Jesus Christ. (laughs) But, you know, I think that that's much more interesting than being a milliner. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, not to denigrate because Chanel suits are like quality, beautiful. But like anyway. Yeah. No, I I was only curious just because like it's fascinating to me that Skio was the one who was on the cover of Time Mm -hmm. first. Oh, yeah. And it just made me curious, like, what Chanel was doing at the time, like, when they became rivals. But it's not important it's to really, the story. Yeah, no, it's not, which is fascinating. I mm-hmm. thought it would be because the, when I was initially looking at stuff about Chanel, they kept talking about Schiaparelli. Hmm. But stuff I found on Schiaparelli didn't really go into detail about Chanel. She's just doing her own shit. Also, I saw one thing on Wikipedia that said that it's pronounced Schiaparelli, which is weird to me because it's S-C-H-I-A, which I think is more, that's like maybe the anglicized, like Schiaparelli. But Mm. it's like Schiaparelli, like I think it's more Italian. Anyway, so if anybody's listening to this and thinks that I'm butchering her name, I I, apologize. I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, (laughs) um, So now you've seen a bunch of her I love it I want it all yep um oh uh in June 1936 Vogue ran an interview imagining a conversational face-off I thought this was interesting after our last episode between Schiaparelli and Joseph Stalin oh it's imaginary but it's in which Schiap which is what her friends called her taunts the dictator about the increasing influence of fashion on Soviet women Oh, and I'm like, ooh, I want to see what that 
yeah fake interview it's like she's dominating Stalin <laughs> oh my god um from the outset uh Elsa and her designs for women with strong and independent personalities attracted famous customers of course Wallace Simpson the future Duchess of Windsor whose Ooh. trousseau which is like a trousseau is what you gather um for as a bride a new bride Oh. which I had to look at up, whose trousseau would bear the Scaparelli label. Mm. Um, Marlena Dietrich, Catherine Hepburn, Greta Garbo, Lauren Bacall, Jean Tierney, Vivian Lee, Ginger Rogers, and Mae West, just to name a few. <laughs> Shit. Which those are all wonderful, fucking amazing women. Who and I they're love. huge. Like huge. their presence in the fucking media is gigantic. Yep. And the 1930s marked her most famous artistic collaborations. Uh, Salvador Dali, with whom she created now legendary pieces, suits with bureau drawer pockets, a shoe hat, a lobster printed dress, a skeleton dress, <gasps> the tear dress, tear dress, the Roy Soleil perfume bottle, etc. I need that skeleton dress, whatever that is. Whatever it is. And Jean Cocteau, whose drawings featured on coats, evening ensembles, and jewelry. The surrealist and artistic spirit took hold of leather ankle boots with toes represented by top stitching, along with the uh. men, men's fragrance bottle in the shape of a pipe in a nod to Magritte. Whoa. Gloves with red python nails. Ankle boots fringed with long monkey fur. I just love that she had such a sense of humor, too. Yes. About, like, because clearly that she's not taking it's it entirely serious. Yeah, man. A rhodoid necklace encrusted with insects, which you saw. Yep. Uh, handbags with luminous battery-powered decoration. What? Further emphasizing the surrealistic theatricality of the clothes from this period, Schiaparelli organized some of them into thematic collections, like Stop, Look, and Listen in 1935, <laughs> Music, and Paris 1937 in 1937, Zodiac, Pagan, Circus, and Commedia dell'arte. She had themes. Like, I feel like this woman is connected to me and I didn't even know it. Now you do. Now I do. Um, 1937 also saw the launch of the perfume Shocking and the color that she invented known as Shocking Pink, which would be associated with her from there on out. Okay. Um, the perfume whose bottle represented a dressmaker dummy following the curves of Mae West. Which we've seen that a, a variation on times. that. Fucking Kim Kardashian just like stole the fuck out of that. Yeah. Um, was decorated with porcelain flowers and a velvet measuring tape. The color of the bottle was a pure, vibrant, undiluted, intense and lively pigment of pink. She said that the color inspiration came from a Cartier diamond owned by her friend Daisy Fellows. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, so... Her creativity and business was unfortunately interrupted by the Second World War. Ah. Hooray. Um, until the summer of 1940, though, she had um, fought to keep her couture house in business so that she could maintain as many jobs for people as possible because she recognized that she was kind of a, a, a pillar yeah. in, in making sure people were employed. Yeah. Um, but in view of the air raids, uh, she created practical, comfortable clothing. Okay. Zippered jumpsuits with maxi pockets intended to hold the equivalent of a handbag. Okay. A coat with an integrated bag, transformable dresses, etc. Wow. So she took her, because she'd always kind of used utilitarian sort of inspiration and made it fashion. And now she really did it in times of danger. Yeah. Now she, she was taking fashion and, and making, making it, it utilitarian. Practical. Yes. Um, 
so but you know obviously things in france got pretty intense um so prompted by security and business uncertainties precipitated by the war also the fact that she was an italian living in italian born like she was a french person but she's italian born which yeah that was problematic and Um, why was that problematic because italy was in the axis (laughs) so people probably weren't like super happy to see her around even though she had long she left italy in 1914 right 13 Anyway, um, so she left Paris in 1941 and moved to New York, where rather than designing, she involved herself with war-related volunteer activities, including providing service as a nurse's aide at Bellevue Hospital. Her design house remained open, but collections were prepared by associates. Interesting. After four years, at the end of the occupation, she returned to Paris and resumed her career. While her return was hailed by the press and she further expanded her American markets with licensing agreements and a New York manufacturing location, her influence was eclipsed by the emergence of a new generation of fashion designers, most notably Christian Dior and Cristobal Balenciaga. Oh, uh uh-huh. In 1947, Dior, like Scaparelli 20 years earlier, captivated America and Europe with what became known as the new look that, too, had shock value, but of a different, ultimately more conventional and romantic sort. Yeah. The world of haute couture had changed. In 1954, the House of Scaparelli declared bankruptcy and its founder retired, spending most of her time in Tunisia, where she had built a home. She devoted much of her time to writing an autobiography, which is called Shocking Life. Oh, that's a good title. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, she died in her sleep in her home in Paris in 1973 at the age of 83 years old. Her looping signature is emblazoned in gold on her gravestone. Oh, that's cool. Among her many contributions to the development of 20th century fashion, Scaparelli's fearless challenge to the status quo, incorporation of wit and humor into fashion designing, what you were talking about, melding of art with dressmaking, rank among the highest. Her couture house in Place Vendôme remained closed until 2012 when the brand was relaunched. Really? Apparently so. I wonder who had the like. Uh, I don't know who's in charge. The of rights it now. to do that, yeah. Her influence still echoes through the work of Comme des Garçons, John Galliano, and Prada. All right. Yeah. So that's Elsa Schiaparelli. Wow. Oh my god. It was really believe. fucking cool. Like she, it, it, it is sort of on brand for me because she's an artist, truly, and a big like a like a big personality, which I feel like is. So perfect for you. Yeah. But I'm I'm shocked. I did, Just because so much of her clothing is like stuff that feels so me, I'm mm-hmm. shocked that I've never seen it. I mean, maybe I've seen seen it in places, but I don't I didn't know yeah. the origins of it. Well, I know that a lot of her designs are in art museums now. Like, I think the Met has a lot of her stuff. Um, That's so fucking cool. Mm-hmm. I love that. God, I got to go uh, surf all- all of her yeah. designs now. Let's go to the Met. Let's go see some of her shit. God, yeah, let's do that. Uh-huh. Let's absolutely do that. We have so many field trips to take. Uh, summer. <laughs> yeah, when it's exactly. warm. Well, the Met, maybe we could go to in winter because it's indoors. Okay, yeah, fair. I'm pretty... Uh, I'm in love with her. Pretty like, excited I, about her. Yep. <laughs> I'm like going to go do my own research now. I want to read her autobiography. Yeah. Where she talks about releasing the fleas. <laughs> And getting kicked out of a convent. I know. I shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> and she was sent to a convent for writing erotic poetry. Like, oh what? Oh, God. It's <laughs> like, I, how could she have designed anything other than what she designed with that like, personality? Like, thank goodness she ran into, she, like, met Gabrielle Picabia on the ship 
when she was she had first married her husband and they were moving to I mean it was two years after but they're still newlyweds they're moving to the United States and she runs into a woman who not only owns a fashion boutique but is the wife of a Dadaist painter. That's a good lesson for creatives. Never discount the people you meet in Your chance random meetings. places. Yes. Yeah. And never, I mean, like, I think so many of us do that thing where we're like, oh, well, I've reached a certain point and now I don't have to pay attention to this person over here who mm-hmm. maybe is cool and nice and they're fine, but, but they like, they can't do anything. They for can't me. do anything for me. Like, don't, don't, don't do that do shit. That. Because you never fucking know. You never know. That's, uh, I can't stop talking about her. Do you want to hear some on this day? Yeah, tell <laughs> we, me. We could go on forever and ever and day. ever. Um, so this episode drops on January 30th. And I had a shitload that I even had to cut out because a lot happened on January 30th. I don't know what is in the air at the end of January. I don't know. But here we go. Let's hear it. January 30th, 1649. King Charles I of England beheaded. Ugh. 1820, Edward Bransfield cites the Trinity Peninsula and claims the discovery of Antarctica. Okay. Crazy. <laughs> it's the European discovery of places. You know how they do. They do. Um, 1835, in the first assassination attempt against a president of the United States, Richard Lawrence attempts to shoot President Andrew Jackson, but fails and is subdued by a crowd, including several congressmen, as well as Jackson himself, which is not surprising, but I kind of wish he had succeeded. I was just going to say that. (laughs) Andrew Jackson was a piece of shit um, who had chronic diarrhea. Um, He did. The dollop episode about him is fucking great. Um, Plug. Plug. Yeah. 1847, Yerba Buena, California is renamed to San Francisco. Aha. Uh-huh. I didn't know it was initially named Yerba Buena. And why would you? Ma- it would make sense because California was Mexico. Y- yep, yep. <laughs> uh, January 30th, 1933. Adolf Hitler sworn in as Chancellor of Germany. Fuck you, Hitler. Pretty big piece of shit. Wow. Uh, maybe God, the biggest. That's today? Ugh. Mm. Yeah. 1948. Mahatma Gandhi is assassinated. What the fuck? Nathuram Godse, a Hindu extremist. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, We're all a little antsy on January 30th. Yeah, I I think it's like winter cabin fever. I don't (laughs) know. Uh, 1956, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s home is bombed in retaliation for the Montgomery bus boycott. What the fuck? This is what I'm saying. All huge shit. Um, 1968. Uh, Vietnam War, Tet Offensive launched by forces of the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army against South Vietnam, the United States and their allies. Whoa. Uh, Tet Offensive. Today. Today. (laughs) Today. Yeah. 1969, the Beatles' last public performance on the roof of Apple Records in London. The impromptu concert is broken up by police. Oh, (laughs) that sucks. (laughs) 1982, Richard Screnta writes the first PC virus code. Oh. Which is 400 lines long and disguised as an Apple boot program called Elk Cloner. Jesus. Wow. 1982 on this day. Thanks, Screnta. Well, it's good because then now antivirus stuff exists because people go, well, people can hack into this and destroy your shit. And they will. And they will. Uh, Birthdays. 1882. FDR. American lawyer, politician, 32nd president of the United States. Happy birthday, FDR. Yep. Um, 1928, Harold Prince, American director and producer. 
He produced West Side Story. He uh-huh. produced and directed She Loves Me. He produced and directed A Little Night Music, produced and directed Cabaret, produced and directed Company, directed Evita, directed Sweeney Todd, directed Phantom of the Opera. Like, prolific. A uh, fuck ton of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cabaret. He was the the one who came up with the idea in the initial um, uh, production of Cabaret where they had a mirror in the back of the stage so that the audience could see themselves and knew that they were complicit in this part because Cabaret obviously is about the rise of the Third Reich yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. And uh, like fucking genius. Holding a mirror up to life. That bullshit. Uh, anyway. Happy birthday, Harold. Happy birthday. Uh, deaths. Both in 2006 uh, today, uh, Coretta Scott King, Mm. on the anniversary of when her home was bombed, which is weird. Um, Jesus. And Wendy Wasserstein, she's an American playwright, um, wrote the Heidi Chronicles. She's like a pretty famous female playwright from America. And if you don't know her, look her up. She's great. All right. Done. There you go. Uh, I just What are you excited about this week? (laughs) I just realized I didn't think anything up. But I mean, it's it's um, I'm probably going to end up saying this a lot over the next few months just because it's in my present. But like we did a table read for our pilot yesterday and it was very it was good and it made me happy. And hell yeah, I saw opportunities for revision. But for the most part, like I think we did a pretty good job. And so I liked it. Yeah, I yeah, got to be you a part were of there, <laughs> and you did wonderfully. And um, oh, thanks. you know, it's it's really interesting being in a room of full of people reading your words to you, and trying to see, you know, trying to imagine them in TV format, and it's just exciting. It just means we're one step closer to um, hearing know. it out loud is such a significant yeah like thing because you're not writing a novel, you're not writing a book, you're writing something that's meant to be spoken and meant to be um like even the, the the actionable stuff or the descriptors hearing them out loud really paints a picture in a sense that isn't quite the same when you read it exactly so i think it was a pretty significant moment in the process yeah i agree and i feel like it went really well so thank i think you. you should be excited about it thank you well i am <laughs> yeah <laughs> well should we uh should we uh peace on out of here I get think that some, sounds like a great idea. <laughs> if if you would please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes, we would very much appreciate it. We're due for some new new reviews. Um, they are very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, they help people find us, and yep. they let people know that we're worth listening to. And we um, know that there's a pretty decent number of you who listen. Um, so clearly, some of you think we're worth listening to. So <laughs> yeah. it would help. Other people discover us if you would be so nice. It could be just like, yeah. great podcast. That's all it has to be. Just yeah. leave a couple words. Descriptors are nice, but yeah, helps boost our visibility. Exactly. Which we would love. Agreed. Yay. So please do that. GWBB podcast on all forms of social media. Uh, at Gmail, if you want to shoot us an email. Yep. We, we like getting them. those. Yep. Uh, And otherwise, I think that's it. And we'll see you next week. Peace out, witches. Bye. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you for listening. (laughs) You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Blueberry, and more. Basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Mm If you like our podcast, it would be really helpful if you could please like and subscribe, rate and review, share with your friends on social media, word of mouth, Mm -hmm. all of that. 
It's great. Yes, and you can find us on Twitter at GWBB Podcast. Instagram is the same, and we are on Facebook under Good Witches, Bad Bitches Podcast. And hey, guess what? If you want to hear all of our episodes, they are all up at our website, GWBBPodcast.com. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to share with us and that you want us to share on our podcast at some point, you can email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. Hey guys, you know what? If you like what you hear, maybe please consider a little bit of supporting us financially by visiting our tip jar. Um, The link is in the show notes. Every little bit helps. It just kind of makes it so that we can keep this going so that it has some longevity. So just think about it. See, See how you feel about it. Or you can support this podcast directly by buying us a coffee on our Ko-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> so that is ko-fi.com slash GWBB podcast. Um, coffee start at $3 because that's generally the price of a fancy coffee and it just helps us keep the ship going. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is produced by Moon Bounce and powered by Pine Boom, boom, boom. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening.